Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Shobana Xavier. In each new episode, we chat with the author of a new book in Islamic Studies. In today's episode, we have the author of Western Sufism, From the Abbasids to the New Age, Mark Sedgwick. In his book, Western Sufism, Sedgwick maps the ideational processes that have led to the development of contemporary Western Sufism. Sedgwick showcases how Neoplatonism influenced Arab philosophy and subsequently Sufism. Pre-modern Sufism then appealed to Jewish and Christian mystics who frame Sufism as a non-Islamic tradition, in effect emphasizing its universalism. With this historical mapping, Sedgwick masterfully shows how, even in its earliest period, Sufism was engaged with by Muslims and non-Muslims, and thus the fluidities noted in Western Sufism in the contemporary context is by no means unique but rather reflective of an age-old process of textual, philosophical, and mystical transmissions. Moving between questions of orthodoxy and heterodoxy, universal and Islamic, the study naturally challenges how we think about and frame Sufism. This book is a must-read for anyone interested in Sufism, especially in its modern Western forms. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Mark Sedgwick. Today, we're excited to have um, the author of Western Sufism from the Abbasids to the New Age, Mark Cedric. Thank you so much for joining with us today. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm very excited to talk to you about this book um, and its tradition in new books in Islamic studies to start off our conversation with asking the author to maybe reflect on your broader intellectual journey and what led you to writing this book. Yeah, well, this book is in some ways a continuation of a project that I started many, many years ago, which in fact was originally going to be one chapter in my PhD thesis. And then that grew into a book, which was the book I wrote on Against the Modern World. And part of what I was trying to work out for Against the Modern World was what the background against the modern world is is about the traditionalist movement and René Guénon and, and, and that variety of Sufism and so on. And part of what I was trying to do in that book and for that book was to work out the background for it. And there was perhaps a chapter of background in that book. So like the one chapter in my thesis turned into a book, the one chapter in that book uh, has now sort of turned into this new book on Western Sufism. And um, can you share with us maybe also the methodological process? I was reading the book and I'm kind of really um, amazed by all the details and engagement with different sources. Has this been a um, you know accumulation of you spending time in archives, collecting sources over the few years from your dissertation to now, or? Yeah, I mean, it's been a process that's been going on for years, actually. And what has, because the book, of course, is is very much about the the Western imagination of Sufism and the Western reception of Sufism and so on. Yeah, one one of the one of the things that has that, that really changed as I was researching it was the invention of Google Books and now of the Hathi Trust Digital Library. 
was at, at, the, at the beginning of the process, I remember there was a reference that I came across somewhere to um, some sort of paper on Sufism that had been given by some guy uh, in at the very beginning of the 19th century. And I knew this, would exi- knew this existed, and I looked and looked and looked, and I couldn't find it. And a few years later, I came back to the same question, and... Uh, Google Books had been invented, so I just Googled it. The other thing that was amazing was that at the beginning of it, to read some of this stuff, I had to go to special libraries and go into special rooms and special libraries and put on white gloves. And by the time I finished, I just downloaded the PDF onto my own computer. We could get into some of the sections of the book now. Um, your first section maps um, the relationship between Neoplatonism, Arab philosophy, and Sufism. And you say that without Arab Neoplatonism, really in the form of Arab philosophy, um, Sufism would not have um, uh, would have been something very different. Why is that? Well, I mean, I've, I'm trying to. One of the things I'm trying to understand is what is Sufism, and this is something that I've been trying to explain for I don't know. 20, 20, 30 years now, because this has always been my central research area. Right. And so, you know, over, over the years, I've, I've, I've tried various different ways of explaining what Sufism is, various ways of defining Sufism. What I realized as I was writing this book is that one thing one has to look at very clearly and carefully is the whole theology of Sufism. Mm-hmm. And, and this, of course, is what interested the first Western scholars to get into the whole subject, because that's what they had in front of them, is, is the theological texts. Anyhow, so trying trying to understand, uh, on the one hand, the, the theology of Sufism, on the other hand, why so many Westerns, Western intellectuals found it so interesting and so appealing, this brought me to look at the ways in which Sufi theology reflects uh, Neoplatonism or what I'm sometimes calling emanationism, uh, which is, is, is approximately the same thing. Right. And in this process, what is amazing is then what you kind of unpack the different intercultural transfers. And one of the ones, early ones that you do is kind of um, is Jewish Sufism. And I was really kind of intrigued by this and um, kind of the uh, engagement across uh, maybe Jewish uh, mystical traditions such as Kabbalah and Sufism. Um, as I was reading this, I was almost curious of wondering, you know, why did Jewish Sufism perhaps not survive or has it survived in the modern context? Yes. I mean, we the- we don't know that much about it. I mean, it just sort of fades away and disappears. And I don't know, really. I mean, perhaps perhaps it's because some of the, the whole philosophical Neopla- Neoplatonic approach survives in Kabbalah, and um, because the Jews have Kabbalah, they have less need of the Jewish Sufism that was invented then. Perhaps it's also because that the whole idea of Jewish Sufism was founded on something which was fundamentally a bit unlikely. I mean, the idea that Sufism was actually Jewish, the idea that Sufism really, you know, it was such a cool thing that it had to have Jewish origins. And, I mean, yes, these Muslims thought it was theirs, but, you know... (laughs) 
what can one expect? You know, and in fact, it it was really Jewish. I mean, this this is 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 an idea that sort of work, clearly worked, but from from other perspectives, you know, there there's something a bit unlikely about that idea. Right. And this is this broader um, idea that you're mapping out is how Sufism is then presented in non-Islamic forms historically. And so what we're seeing in the modern times is actually a broader trajectory and it's not unique in some ways. Right. Exactly. And this, you know, this is part of the intellectual trajectory behind the book. But I'm starting off uh, with, with, with my first book on Against the Modern World, thinking that I'm looking at an early 20th century phenomenon. And then I realize in that book that actually we have to look at the 19th century aspect of this. So then for the, for the new book, I started off thinking, actually, well, perhaps it's not just 19th century. Perhaps I should look at the 18th century. And then I found myself looking at the 17th, 16th, 15th. <laughs> and just went back and back and back. And, and I realized that, you know, it really wasn't a new phenomenon at all. It was something that had been going on really since the, since the very beginning. And, and then, then I realized it wasn't just that there were these transfers from Sufism into the West and back and so forth, I realised that, that, you know, in some ways Sufism itself, in its theology, especially in the philosophy, is is itself the product of, uh, of an early intercultural transfer. Right. And you continue to provide us amazing examples. And the trajectory that you map up is so important for our field. Um, And another example that you provide us with is understanding the colonial context of it, right? Because I think we have a lot of uh, perceptions of the negative impacts of Orientalism. But here in this context, you're um, showing how there was significant intercultural transfers during the colonial context and how that was so important for the transmission of Sufism into the West. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, at the, at the beginning of this process, uh, there was a colonial context, I suppose, but the colonial power was the Ottoman Empire. Right, yeah. Um, which, I mean, okay, I, I know that some people are, uh, would like to make a distinction between between the, the expansion of the Ottoman Empire and the expansion of the, of the French and British empires, but uh, it, it was something that struck me very much, that at the beginning of this period, when... French, especially scholars, are are writing about the Ottomans and, and about Islam. The the power balance between the two civilizations is really very very different. And at, at the very beginning of this, um, Europeans are afraid of the Ottomans and are actually justifiably afraid of the Ottomans because at that point the Ottoman Empire was still expanding. And it was it was uh, it was it was threatening the the European, which which of course gives gives a completely different approach because there's a certain respect that you have to have at that point. And during this encounter, then, we know most of the perhaps um, individuals who are coming or witnessing or encountering the Ottomans are meeting, you know, as you're describing, either whirling dervishes or ascetic figures that they're coming to contact with first. And they're really motivated by maybe the music or the ritual and are not really understanding what's going on. Yeah, Except, of course, there are these these really interesting exceptions, these 
first two Europeans who really get to know Sufism properly, and that the reason that they can do this is that the, the reason that they can get to know Sufism from the inside is that they have been enslaved. So they are they are living, uh, they are really living Ottoman society from the inside. One of the one of the guys who who really intrigues me is this guy who we know as George of Hungary. Yes, exactly. Uh, I mean, we you know we have we have his text and all the details it gives us, but apart from that, we know almost nothing about him. And what I find difficult to understand with, about George of Hungary is that you know it's it's fairly clear that he became uh, that he not only uh, converted to Islam uh, and practiced that seriously. But he, he also became quite a serious Sufi. Um, he he learned the poetry, he knew the poetry, he loved the poetry, he 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 engaged in absolutely everything. And you know, he appears to have become totally integrated into Ottoman Sufi society and, and even respected for this. And then suddenly he leaves it all and goes back. And how and why he did that. Uh, we have absolutely no idea. Do you have any? You have no guesses, or <laughs> absolutely no guesses. Yeah, because, I mean, there's a, you know, there's 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 another guy who's the, the who's an Italian who a slave, um, who you know is is captured young and escapes when he can after a relatively short period. But but this guy's you know he's he's been in it for he's been in it for decades. And this kind of sets the stage really for the broader textual transmissions that we're going to start seeing, right? Um, and a lot of these textual transmissions, um, especially through translation, are going to go into Europe, but also into the American context across the Atlantic. Um, and then you have these movements that are taking place. So, for example, in America, the transcendentalism and the theosophical movements. And so in many ways, I mean, the timing is amazing in terms of how it primes it for the reception of Sufism. So how are these import, these movements such as transcendentalism? Theosophical society really um, setting the stage or um, set you know um, important for the reception of Sufism into the Western context. Well, I mean, the Theosophical Society is setting the stage because the Theosophical Society is the first major attempt to uh, use non-Christian theological uh, ideas. Um, re- religious practices of various varieties uh, for you know for by Westerners for Western purposes. Uh, before this, you know, there, there have been individual scholars who are interested in what they're what they're reading in Arabic or translated from Arabic, and then there have been individuals like George of Hungary who who you know penetrated uh, the, the Islamic world and, 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 and Muslim societies and so on. But they've, they've left Europe, they've left the West, normally Europe in those days, and, and gone on these amazing journeys and voyages and so forth. With the Theosophical Society, we've got people who are sitting in New York or sitting in San Francisco or sitting in London or Paris or whatever, they're not having to go on epic voyages. They're not having to learn obscure and exotic languages. It's it's being given to them, translated, 
um, adjusted for their comprehension. And, uh, you know, it's, the, it's, the, it's as always, it's the sort of supply and demand thing, because on, on the one hand, one of the things that is remarkable is that we've got all these people who, who, who want to read this stuff. They want to learn from, from what other religions in other parts of the world are doing. They want to use this to satisfy their own spiritual needs and, and searches and so forth. So that's one thing that's, that's, that's happening. The other thing that's happening is that these, these ideas, these texts, and then as time goes on, people uh, from outside the West are available to, to answer this demand, to respond to this demand. Right. And this, um, you know, eventually leads at times to the invitation of some of these teachers to come and speak directly to some of these audiences who are reading a lot of these texts. Right. Um, And then you have individuals like, um, uh, you know, Hazrat Inia Khan, which you get towards the end of the book. But before we get there, um, another um, aspect I wanted to talk about was the traditionalist movement. And you did a a lot of this work in your previous book, as you mentioned. Um, But um, I wanted to talk about maybe the political activism of the traditionalist movement that you mentioned in this context, especially in the European side. Um, And I wonder if there's tendencies of this um, still unfolding in the modern world in light of the current political climate. Um, So, I mean, you're you're thinking, you're thinking here of uh, Ivan Ageli's sort of anti-colonial activism. Exactly, exactly. Um, and it was a very curious aspect of the book that I was really intrigued by. Um, and and it's something that you often don't hear. And this is where you start realizing all these different approaches to how people are employing the idea of Sufism, right? Um, no, I mean, and of course, that was in some ways, that was one of the things that the that was inherent in the whole Theosophical Society as, as well that comes that comes before this, because the Theosophical Society is also a, a politically important anti-colonial force. Uh, and anti the members of the Theosophical Society are, are sort of anti-colonial activists in India and so forth. And I think that's because you know, it's it's a bit difficult um, for a Westerner to maintain, on the one hand, that uh, and I'm thinking here of the Theosophical Society to maintain, on on the one hand, that the Vedanta is the most amazing thing and has the answer to everything and is far superior to anything we've got in the West, and on the other hand, to maintain that it's the natural thing for the West to rule India because you know the the the, the two ideas just aren't really compatible. If this if this other civilization is so superior, you know, why shouldn't it be ruling itself? Um, so, I mean, that that logic is in there. That it's 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 a bit difficult to to appreciate when we get to the Sufis. It's a bit difficult to be really enthusiastic about Sufism, and at the same time, enthusiastic about the idea of, of, of Western colonial control of Islamic societies. But. There's something else to it as well, I think. It's it's not just that being a Westerner who's into Sufism is likely to make you anti-colonial. Being anti-colonial is something that is likely to make a Westerner interested in Sufism. It works that way as well. Right. And if you, you know, because, okay, at the, at the logical level, that if, uh, if I am uh, inclined to look for things of of value 
in a non-Western society, and a non-Western society happens to be Islamic, there's a good chance that I'm going to discover that Sufism is is, is there as something of, of value. But even beyond that, if you look at Ageli, this guy who was um, technically probably the first uh, Western Sufi living in the West, this 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 Swedish painter moved to Paris. Uh, he was, you know, he was politically active before he even thought of, of before he even discovered Sufism, before he even discovered Islam. He was, he was reading. He at one point he was reading the Quran whilst he was in jail, and in Paris, and he was in jail because of his engagement with the with the anarchist movement. So, yeah, I mean, in a sense, in a sense. Um, if if even Ageli was around today, rather than at the end of nineteenth century, uh, we'd be asking how he got radicalized or something like that. And even within um, other moves, so I'm thinking mainly here with individuals like um, Nasser and Shuan, which you yeah. kind of map out. Um, there are then ways in which there's tensions even within singular movements like the traditionalist um, in terms of what is Islamic and non-Islamic forms of Sufism, where you have one um, kind of teacher reorienting one way and another teacher um, having set a different standard. Um, And I think that's what most people, you know, do not understand is all these broader orientations within the idea of Sufism, but even within singular movements, how there are perhaps tensions and how they're presenting Sufism, right, one after the other. yeah, and that, I mean because we hear one one of the fundamental problems, or at least one of the fundamental issues, is the question of to what extent uh, Sufism is universal, and in what ways it is universal. Right. Because when when we first when you first think about the idea of universal or universalism, this sounds very all inclusive, but then in fact when you look at it, it the, the idea of, of the universal idea is not necessarily an all-inclusive idea because there's two ways of being universal. One of them is that, and this is the way in which a lot of people, a lot of people Westerners in the, in the late 19th century are quite universal, is to say, uh, okay, so the, 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 the fragments of the truth can be found everywhere. I can find fragments of the truth in, in the Greek myths. I can find fragments of the truth in, in the Vedanta, uh, in, in Buddhism, etc., etc., etc. And that's a big, very, very all-inclusive. The other way of being universal is to say, here is the truth. This truth is universally true. I have got the universal truth. That's that. And that isn't very all-inclusive at all. Right. So, so, I mean, this, this, this tension comes up time and time again within the, the history of the Western reception of Sufism, the Western understanding of Sufism. In before before we have actual live Sufi groups in the West and afterwards as well. And so this tension, do you think, is a tension that we that is also reflected of what people might say, you know, classical Sufism, right, with figures like Ibn al-Arabi um, and then something like um, individual like Hazrat Inayat Khan, both of them in some capacity, even though very different historical context, are talking about this idea of universalism from a Quranic perspective, right? But are there universalisms then that are, again, 
absolutes versus being inclusive? Is there something that we need to then, as you're saying, these two different types of universalisms, how do we need to then understand it if we are invested in trying to study Sufism? And is that then, can we still call it Sufism, right? Is, is it something that we should be calling um you know, Western Sufism, Islamic Sufism, because I think that's what you're really problematizing is all these different labels, perhaps yeah. they're not working at all. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the context is extremely important here because Hazrat Khan is talking about the universalism of Sufism uh, after he's been chatting to people from the Theosophical Society in New York. Uh, and, you know, he has... He has a certain understanding of what it, what it means, what the, what universalism means. He, go, he goes on; he, he likes to go talk about the the universal brotherhood of man and, and things like this. Now, uh, Ibn Arabi, you know, did not live in that sort of context at all. He did, he lived in a very very different world and was talking to to very very different people. And in fact, you can sort of say the same thing uh, in two different contexts and it'll mean something different. Right. Which which is also actually one of the one of the reasons that this whole thing has been an issue that if I'm sitting in in the Theosophical Society reading rooms in New York in in, in 1900, uh, reading a translation of Ibn Arabi, I can th- I can think that he's saying something which those words would mean in my context that he wasn't really saying at all because he he was in such a different context. With the question of labels. I, I mean, I'm calling the book Western Sufism mm-hmm. because, you know, I, I need a nice, short, recognisable title. Right. But actually, of course, one of the things that the book really shows, that the events that, that I follow in the book really shows, is that labels like that just do not work. And in some ways, I'm actually trying to... Uh, trying to, to to question my own label with my subtitle, the same Western Sufism from the Abbasids to the New Age, because of course uh, the Abbasids were not exactly Western, uh, and and the this the sort of neat distinction uh, that that one tries to make between the West and and the Islamic world that people some people try to make between the West and the Islamic world it it, it really doesn't work. Precisely because there have been all, all these transfers, and uh, because sometimes the binary just doesn't work and work at all in the first place, and that's one of the things. One of the things that, that that I'm discussing in the early part of the book is what's going on in Al-Andalus. And uh, one of the things that's going on in Al-Andalus, and this is part of the background to the whole Jewish Sufism business, one of the things that's going on in Al-Andalus is that we have Jewish philosophers who are participating in the high culture of the time and place, um, who are participating in exactly the same philosophy and therefore exactly the same Neoplatonic ideas as the uh, the Muslim philosophers. So that's that's one of the reasons why I call it uh, I try to call it Arab philosophy rather than Islamic philosophy because it's not just Muslims participating in philosophy. Right. 
So what do we do now if we've challenged all these labels? Because um, you conclude really by saying that we shouldn't treat it as an East and West, which you, uh, you know, a binary split, which you talked about. And we also shouldn't treat it as Orientalist scholarship and Islamic scholarship, right? But those are not binary splits either. Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, cross-fertilization and yeah. cultural transfers. So you've really kind of helped us show us the, the nuances, right? And problematize. So how do we then kind of go forward knowing that this is the problematics that we're facing? Well, I think sometimes in one direction, sometimes one can be quite specific. One can one can say, well, is this discussion going on in Arabic or in Latin? <laughs> and you know, if it's going on in Arabic, it's going to be read primarily by people who know Arabic. And if it's going on in Latin, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So sometimes, sometimes one can be one can be specific, uh, really, by looking by looking at language. Sometimes, however, one just has to say that, you know, this idea doesn't really belong anywhere in particular. And if we take the idea of of emanation, which is, as I say, is is one of the terms that I use to try and avoid some of the problems associated with the term Neoplatonism, if we're looking at the idea of emanation, uh, where does this idea belong? We, We first encounter it in... Uh, in, 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 in classical Greek philosophy. We encounter it in Islamic philosophy. We encounter it in Western philosophy. We encounter it in 20th, late 20th century Sufis in New York. So, you know, where does this idea belong? A problem that I, that I just can't even begin to get into and therefore don't really mention in the book at all is is that we also find similar ideas if we go over to China, mm. uh, which makes life even more complicated. So, I mean, you know, c- c- certain ideas, I think, just cannot be limited to particular areas or geographical areas or civilizations or anything like that because they're bigger. They're bigger. The idea of a nation is an idea which is older and bigger than, uh, than than Islam. It's older and bigger than the Christianity or the West or anything like that. Right. And then in the same way, though, if we talk about someone like Sufi Sam in San Francisco, um, do we then still, is the use of the word Sufism itself being, um, is it problematic as well? Like, can we still use, you know, Sufism um, to describe perhaps what's happening with Sufi Sam as much as it's happening, as you're saying in examples that pro- you haven't even engaged with in this yeah, book? Yeah. I mean, he had a very particular understanding of Sufism. And his understanding of Sufism uh, came from, it, it came from Hazrat Inayat Khan. Uh, it also came from other sources, uh, he, he was he was in touch with Zen people who were, who were teaching Zen Buddhism as well. It came from nineteenth-century sources, etc., etc. Et so, I mean, yes, it, it was it was a very eclectic understanding of of Sufism. It wasn't sort of pure Sufism, but where are we going to find pure Sufism? Mm. 
Mm. Uh, aren't religious traditions always eclectic to a greater or a lesser extent? And I completely agree. And I think that's one of the very important um, um, things that you're showing us in this book, you know, be it the Mariamia and the encounters with the um, indigenous traditions and uh, in the American context, or be it Mar Baba and, you know, his um, Hindu context that he comes into and adopts into um, a Sufi American movement, right? The lines are no longer clear and it's no longer East or West. And you actually don't know which way the cultural impacts are being had, right? It's the American influence influencing the Arab world, the Arab world influencing the American side, the European side, to really kind of telling us to thinking about the global context here of, you know, modern Sufism and the historical background to that, right? It hasn't just emerged out of nowhere. This is a part of a longer process. Yeah, but but this is this is absolutely right and this is very important. But also it's not a new thing. That right. we've got, you know, in, in, in some ways, in some ways, of course, it isn't it is uh, something very s- specific to the 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 nineteenth century and even after after the introduction of steamships. So this is one of the things that I discovered as I was researching the book. That the the great thing about the steamship uh, is that you know more or less how long your voyage is going to take. So the chances of of of, of uh, being becalmed halfway to where you're going and running out of food and water on the way are seriously reduced. So anyhow, there there are all sorts of things like the like the introduction of the steamship, which makes travel so much easier and safer and, and predictable and so forth, and creates a a sort of global sphere that. It, that hasn't been possible before. But at the same time, one of the key people for the development of, of, of emanationism and, and, and Neoplatonism is Plotinus. Mm. And we know that Plotinus was born in Egypt, but we do not know whether he was Egyptian or Greek or Roman. And, you know, so he, he is actually born into a very global world. <laughs> or a very global Egypt, or a very global late antique, or something like that. Perhaps we can't really talk about a global world uh, at the end of antiquity, but one could talk about a global late antique. And that cosmo, that maybe perhaps cosmopolitanism in some ways really kind of impacts um, the development of these ideas, right? And technology, because um, the steamship versus today and internet and social media, right? How is it transmitting? Even as you're saying, as you're doing research, you're able to access sources online that you would not have been. Absolutely, and that's you know that's just a later ver- version of of what happens when uh, when Meister Eckhart can suddenly read uh, ac- access sources he hasn't been able to access before because people have helpfully translated them from Arabic into Latin. <laughs> so I suppose that that uh, the 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 new availability of of new sources and new ideas is something that we see time and time again in the in the process that, that the book's looking at. Um, can you share us, maybe uh, let us know some of the things that you're working on now and what we could look forward to in terms of your scholarship? Are you continuing maybe um, some themes that you raised in this book? Um, are you working on new ones? Nowadays, uh, I'm actually doing two things. One of them is that the, the Western Sophist book in some ways was taking some of the things that I've been writing about in Against the Modern World and going backwards. 
Uh, one of the things I'm doing now is taking some of those ideas and going forwards or forwards and next door or something like that. Because what, one of, what I'm looking at now is what I'm calling the neo-traditionalist movement in order to distinguish it from the traditionalist movement. The traditionalist movement is, 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 uh, is, is perennialist, uh, draws heavily on the work of René Guénon and ideas like that. Um, we have something, a movement developing in the Islamic world and in the West and in cyberspace, which is traditionalist, but in a rather different way. It's traditionalist without being perennialist. It's anti-modern, uh, and it sees uh, the, the, the Islam of the Muslim Brothers, for example, as being modern, and it's therefore anti-that. It sees the c- current contemporary Salafist movement as being rather modern too, and is also a- against that. So there's, there's this very Islamic tradition, non-perennialist traditionalist movement that is one of the things that's interesting me very much at present. One other thing that I'm working on has really got absolutely nothing to do with Islam. Um, but uh, when uh, when it was discovered that uh, a guy called Steve Bannon was uh, important in U.S. politics, people started going over some of the things he'd said in the past and stumbled over a reference made by Steve Bannon to Julius Evola, uh, who most people had never heard of, but um, I had because Julius Evelyn is connected with the uh, traditionalist Sufis who I wrote about in Against the Modern World. In fact, there's, there's almost a whole chapter on Evelyn in that book. So suddenly, um, Evelyn seems to have become more important. And in fact, Evelyn is, is just one of a number of. Uh, rightist thinkers who are sometimes uh, connected in one way or another to forms of religion, religion or religiosity or philosophy who have uh, acquired a new importance. So at present I'm having great fun editing a book uh, dealing with 16, 16 people and the title of the book is uh, Key Thinkers of the Resurgent Right. So. Oh. That's, that's something I'm having quite fun with. Those both sound fantastic. I'm very much looking forward to reading them uh, themselves. That's amazing. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's a great honor for me because I've been very inspired by your work. So thank you for having this conversation. Thank you. Well, I enjoyed it very much. And thank you for asking me to join you. Yeah.